Seeing that everybody, gods of the world and mankind, says that nothing existed prior to chaos, I, in distinction to them, shall demonstrate that they are all mistaken, because they are not acquainted with the origin of chaos, nor with its root. Here is the demonstration. You are listening to Raw Material, a podcast by SFMOMA. I'm Ross Simonini, your host for a season of art and the unknown. How well it suits all men on the subject of chaos to say that it is a kind of darkness. But in fact, it comes from a shadow which has been called by the name darkness. And the shadow comes from a product that has existed since the beginning. Chaos is chance, it's randomness, it's nature, and artists are drawn to it. They're constantly trying to access it. You've been listening to a poem about chaos by Ariana Raines, who's a poet, playwright, and professional astrologer. She reads the cosmos and divines knowledge from them as a kind of therapy for her clients. Astrology is a it's a syncretic body of knowledge. So it's syncretizing what formerly were astronomies that include mythologies and philosophies of different cultures, like the Babylonian or the Greek. It's a structure of thought that sees what happens on Earth as a reflection of the movements in the heavens. So from the hermetic maxim, as above, so below, we proceed into astrological thinking and understanding. Divination practices like astrology are ancient ways of reading chaos. You can understand the future, your hidden inner desires, and the deep past. Sometimes you can even manipulate reality. It's a kind of collaboration with nature. You can use a deck of cards like the tarot, or creases in the hand, like palmistry, or just tap into the unseen energies surrounding us all the time, as psychics do. There are countless ways of doing it. Any word with the suffix mancy is a form of divination. Geomancy is reading the earth. Necromancy is telling the future by communing with the dead. Aeromancy is reading the weather. And... Arachnomancy is a way of reading spiders and their webs. How is it and why is it that in the tarot there's so much astrological information? How is it that in herbals there's all kinds of information about astrology um, and, and also about the sun and the moon? And how is it that even things that might seem tacky, like divining the future from the entrails of a bird, how is it that that too has to do with the order of the planets, because the order of the organs inside our bodies also mirrors the order of the planets circulating around the sun. How is it that all of these things are in harmony? Raines' writing is often directly or indirectly influenced by astrology. Her third book, Mercury, named after the planet and mythological god of communication, uses alchemical symbols. 
and she sees her work as a part of a long lineage of artists working with the celestial bodies. All medieval and Renaissance poetry and much of the literature as well is filled with astrological material. Shakespeare is full of it. Of course, then there's tons of ancient texts that are teeming with astrological data too. If one does any kind of excavation beyond the 20th century um, into the history of art, this stuff is everywhere. I mean, you know, from Madame Blavatsky and back. But Reigns uses astrology not just to inform and support her art, but as a counterbalance to it, a way to interact with people without the formality of audience and performer. Practicing astrology was also a way for me to connect with people in a different way when I started burning out on being a traveling artist. And so another way that astrology started, or the other way, was that around 2012, I started to use it while I was on the road as a way to get to know the people in the different places that I went. And it was such a wonderful experience of um, like witnessing and love in a, while sometimes in the artworks that I was presenting or the poems that I was reading, I was sort of doing a different kind of thing. Like it, it's not, it, an artwork doesn't necessarily need to be loving or kind. Sometimes it needs to be trenchant or odd or just itself, you know? Or like, yeah, sometimes it needs to be boring or awkward or, or, or not about medicine, so to speak. And, that, and that's how it does its own medicine. It all comes back to my experience of the world through my body and its rhythms, through bleeding, through not being seen as one who could incarnate like auctoritas, authority, through being, through like the experience of possession and the experience of time and the experience of like the onslaught of insight and of knowing and of vision from out as if from outside and from outside like all of those things I'm like being like really essentialist now but they're female for me like they're utterly utterly intimately connected to the rhythm of my my body it all ends up falling into the pussy in the end for me Another poet, Melissa Buzio, is also a professional diviner. She's a palm reader. And when she read my palm, she placed both of us into a trance. She put her forehead into my palm, 
and then she began to speak. I became a palm reader at the same time I became a poet. And I was, I was trying to write my first book when I was, started doing palm reading all the time in, in Iowa, like just all the time. And I was really scared to do it in the beginning, too, because it seems crazy that anybody could do this. Buzio is working in a direct lineage of divining artists. She began reading palms at the age of 23 when she attended a poetry reading by Banu Kapil, who is herself a palm reader and writer. They had said that she did palm reading for a living, so I went up to her afterwards and said, can I get a reading? How much does it cost? Like, I'll pay you. How long are you in town for? And she looked at me and said, my son can't do it. My sister can't do it. You are the one I want to train you. Her family's been doing it for thousands of years in India. One generation says to pick somebody from the next that they think can do it. So she taught me basically by having me do it. I think, the, I think I also at the time was like extremely interested in psychoanalysis and I was studying yoga, philosophy really deeply and also um, trauma theory and obviously poetry. So all of that also informed the practice. Like Reigns, Buzio sees poetry and divination both as ways of forming human relationships. Each art form to be truly effective requires an intimate relationship with another person. Just even the act of palm reading at, at first, I kind of like translate into like a process of, of writing poetry. A lot of the popular narratives around palmistry usually involve specific prophecies about the future. But Buzio divines more poetically, using phrases and provocations and images that don't necessarily make sense, but resonate on the intuitive level of art. It's literally about lifting out information and giving it structure and giving it language and giving it back so it feels physical, like I'm pulling something out. It could be literally any place on the body, but I can sometimes do it on the, on the phone too. So it's not, it's not even about touch, touch helps it, but it's about being able to feel the other person's like energy through your own body. You're reading the person's higher energy. So like a lot of Eastern philosophy talks about the soul or the self being like a light bulb, but it's covered over in muck and the muck is from trauma, you know, or chatter, just like the daily things we hear every day or culture, you know, the positive and negative things you take, take in from the culture. And most people spent their whole lives thinking like, I don't have enough light, where can I get some? whether it's from another person or it's for a drug or it's I'm going to publish this book or, you know, whatever it is, right? But what this kind of is saying is that you everybody has all the light they need. So to, to really manifest with what they've been given, you know, and like in, in the deepest sense. And so, but it's boring. It'd be like clearing, you know, well, clearing off that light bulb is like doing dishes for a thousand hours or having a meditative practice for 20 years or an art practice. You know, it's like a daily kind of thing. But what palm reading, I think, does is wipes off a little bit of it very dramatically, very fast. And it's not forever, but it kind of allows that information that's already in that person to come out. idea of clairsentience, which is a sensitivity that all beings have, which clairsentience is really means clear knowing. Clair 
is clear. So you talk about clear audience, which is clear hearing, clairvoyance, which is clear seeing, and clear sentience, which is clear feeling. And there's taste and smell and other senses coming to play. Um, but really, as I've been educated, through clairsentience comes these, what you would call subjective psychic abilities. That means that I see, sense, or feel inside myself, not objectively outside. Asher Hartman is an artist and psychic. Like Buzio, he uses touch to read a person, a place, or a thing, using internal sensitivities he's developed over many years with many teachers. When he reads, he closes his eyes, goes into a trance, and delivers a monologue of abstract language. But even artists who work with touch can read remotely. Buzio does it, and so does Hartman, who spoke with me and read my energies from hundreds of miles away. So as I come into your energy, just stepping into the energy, the number seven, it's very interesting. I see this number seven, which to me is the spiritual number, and I see it, though, just slightly, like, cut. It's interesting, this cut, and as I step into this cut, it feels like a little bit, I, I would say, just a hair of disconnection between the throat and the body. Whenever I see that, it may be right now your mind is working. Later on, this happened. I'm eating out of the earth. I'm eating the mud of the earth in my mouth, and it's red earth, red clay. And I'm not sure why that is, but I feel now that I'm digging very quickly into the earth, and I'm, I have to get deeper, deeper into this snake pit. There are these rich worms and these rich wriggly things, branches, tendrils that are deep in the earth, and this is right in the center of your top chakra. One practice Hartman continuously uses is psychometry, which is the method of touching an object and ascertaining its history through extrasensory perception. If I'm holding an object, I will see a vision. I will see multiple visions. The same thing with the person. And these are, I, I, I would say, like psychic clues. What is this? Where is this? What is this about? So those clues, if you will, are meant to unfold through clairsentience, through feeling. Let's say you enter a room and you think, this is a great place. I, I love this place. You may not know a person there, but there's something operating in your system, your feeling, that I'm safe, this is cool, the people are nice, etc. You may have mental pictures, but you may not pick up on them. Or you may hear, you know, something that is inside your head, a voice, or you may see a picture of a word, or you may see a letter, or you may, as I do, hear song titles or movie titles, just as little clues to what's happening. But most of us disregard these. Recently, Hartman performed public psychometry at the exhibition of his partner, Candace Lynn, at Gasworks in London. He touched each of her sculptures and tried to understand how they function, not artistically, but energetically. I've read artists' works because I find that that's very instructive to artists in particular. They really host energies that are quite beyond sometimes the artist's intention. It's very, it's very curious what um, objects will do. Uh, my my uh, collaborative partner, Haruko Tanaka, and I were reading a de Kooning painting in an exhibition. And, you know, you think you know de Kooning. <laughs> you have, like, certain ideas about who de Kooning is, the time period, the, um, the intentions and the influences, and so forth. 
but this painting had nothing, to, I mean, to do with that energetically. It was a very, um, I would say, you know, like a very neutral toned painting, uh, whites and blacks and grays and blues, but it jumped off the wall as a um, kind of a hologram of orange striations and, um, and kind of streaks and claw marks, so really beautiful. The practice of divination is not limited to any tradition or method, and artists who work with it continue to expand its definition. The poet C.A. Conrad refers to himself as a witch poet and is well known in the literary community, but is also a professional diviner. He runs a metaphysical counseling practice in Asheville, North Carolina. In his counseling, Conrad mostly uses the tarot, but in his poetry, he uses a variety of techniques to write, including speaking to trees, performing public rituals he calls somatic rituals, and crystals, which are one of his primary collaborators. I noticed that uh, while we've been talking, you have been clutching at a crystal around your neck. Oh yeah, I have been. What kind of crystal is that? This is uh, an amethyst that is from Mexico, but I've cleaned it up to clean the energy out and then made it my own and I programmed it to do things with me throughout the day. Um, crystals can be programmed. I mean, quartz crystal technology, better known as piezoelectricity, uh, is, you know, the evidence that we have scientifically of how crystals are used in computers and clocks and, you know, we use computers all the time in industry and science. Why not push that technology further and use it and for our lives and that's what crystals can can be done you know you can do that there are several pieces in my new book where i use crystals for one of these poems conrad used a crystal to reinterpret shakespeare so i would read a pair of lines whisper them speak them shout them into the crystal and then in the evening i would ask the crystal to please translate those two lines in my dreams and then I would put the crystal under my pillow and when I would wake up I'd put the crystal on my forehead on my third eye and just write down those two lines immediately and it worked at least I thought it did I used crystals in the new book to talk to trees um, when I conduct workshops I have the participants of the workshops go out and talk to trees or grass or squirrels if you can do that um, and I don't, I don't, I don't like micromanaging anything. I like to just say, let's have this experience and it's your experience. And then we regroup and they're always excited when they go out. But when they come back, they're a little shaken because trees hate us almost universally. Unless they're the really large, like in the mere woods above San Francisco, those trees don't give a shit. You know, those trees are 3,000 years old and they're like... Yeah, that's fine. You can be here with me. But a lot of the trees, especially trees in cities, man, they really do not like us at all. And especially because we're sitting there writing on paper, you know, we've taken their bodies and ground them. up. I mean, the, the hubris of our species is that we don't believe a tree has any thoughts until we cut them down and grind them up and put our own thoughts on them with pencils and pens. But the fact is trees are sentient beings. You know, this whole idea with the first piece in the, the last book, with Emily Dickinson was for me to go to Amherst, 
visit those trees in the backyard, those giant trees in her backyard, she planted. Those are the only living things in Amherst, Massachusetts who are still alive who knew her. So I wanted to commune with them and I took the dirt, that loam, that rich soil around, that very rich bacteria and all that around, and then I took it back to Philadelphia and I would smear that dirt all over me and wander around the Philadelphia for three days writing this poem. If you want, I could read that poem. Sure. This poem is a result of doing that ritual with Emily Dickinson's dirt smearing all over my body. And it's titled, Emily Dickinson came to earth and then she left. Your sweaty party dress and my sweaty party dress lasted a few minutes until the tomato was gone. Someday they will disambiguate you, but not while I'm around. Our species won, Emily. We won. It feels so good to be winning the flame of victory. Pass it around. It never goes out. Dinosaurs ruled Massachusetts. Dinosaurs fucking and laying eggs in Amherst, Boston, Mount Holyoke. Then you appeared, High Priestess, pulling it out of a goddamn garden with both hands. You, Emily, remembered the first time comprehending a struck match can spread a flame. It feels good to win this fair and square. Protest my assessment all you want, but not needing to dream is like not needing to see the world awaken to itself. Indestructible epiphanies consume the path. And just because you're having fun doesn't mean you're not going to die. Recrimination is a fruit to defy with unexpected appetite. I will be your outsider if that's how you need me. Electric company's stupid threatening letters cannot affect a poet who has faced death. Raw Material is produced by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and me, Ross Simonini. You can read a full transcript of my interview with C.A. Conrad at Open Space, SFMOMA's online publication, published under the title Extreme Present. All the music you're hearing today is written and performed by Ian James, an artist, musician, and gallerist in Los Angeles who releases music under the name Anna and Ina. James sees his work as a psychic collaboration with a close friend who took her own life in 2010. For him, the project is a way of continuing a creative dialogue with one of his closest partners across space and time.